a young Protestant man was on his way home from the city centre when he was set upon a gang of youths just around D Street in the Newton Arge Road. He was stripped and left for dead. A local Presbyterian minister passed by and realized that if he stopped to help, he was going to be late for a presbytery meeting at which he had to give a very important report. So he hurried on by. Just afterwards, a local unionist councillor passed by, but he was electioneering and couldn't afford the time to stop. Besides, he would be sure to use this example to good effect in his speech about the urgency for better street lighting and the need to be tough on crime and the causes of crime. Eventually, a Sinn Féin community worker from the Short Strand, who usually drove through that area as quickly as possible, and would have had every reason to be suspicious of decoys and traps, got out of his car, walked over to help the man, and took him up to the Ulster Hospital. When Jesus told his version of that story, he finished by looking a comfortably well-off, grammar school-educated young professional straight in the eye, And he said, now you go and do the same. You go and show the same mercy to those you wouldn't normally mix with, even to those you would deliberately steer away from. If you've been attending here at Kirkpatrick Memorial for any length of time, there are some things that will become pretty clear. One of the things I hope that becomes very clear is that we believe the message of salvation and forgiveness and freedom through Jesus Christ, that we believe that that message is worth sharing. We can't keep it to ourselves. Indeed, we we dare not keep it to ourselves. Evangelism is important. In fact, we've spent weeks looking at how we can be good, natural evangelists in our workplaces, in our social networks, In our neighborhoods, it's what Jesus commands us to do in the Gospels. But Jesus also encourages us to care practically. In fact, he also commands us to do that. I don't know why it is. Maybe it's our tendency to polarize, to to deal in unnecessarily exclusive categories. But the church, and, and, and local churches particularly, have always seemed to struggle with the relationship between evangelism on one hand and social concern, practical care, acts of mercy on the other. I think probably it's a relatively modern difficulty. In my admittedly very cursory reading of church history, the early church, the church fathers, the medieval church, the reformers, Acts of mercy and help never seemed to be very far away from their ministry. Wherever the church was, there was usually a fair chance you would find help and support at a time of need. Perhaps it was as the church became more established in society and had access into the corridors of power that this wasn't always so evident. But it is significant that whenever there was a movement of God's Spirit in a place, in the great evangelical awakenings that roused the church of the 18th and 19th centuries out of its spiritual deadness, what you also found was 
that that rising out of spiritual deadness resulted in a real burst of social action and social reform. Today, of course, when most Western governments can be relied upon to give some sort of aid and help to the poor, although not nearly enough, of course, in this day and age, church members can easily be lulled into a sense of complacency in this regard, feeling that their tax pounds and tax dollars do the business and they can get on with the job of doing church. Now, admittedly, not all individuals or churches have felt this way, but for most it has been a struggle to grasp how the Bible sees the true balance between those two aspects of Christian ministry. What has resulted, of course, has been a number of different positions. And what I want us to do in preparation for some of the thinking we'll be doing as a church over the next number of months is to help us see what the Bible really says on issue. And to do that, sometimes we have to look at some wrong ways that people have sought to interpret this uh, balance. First of all, there are those found in many, uh, I guess, traditional evangelical churches, most fundamental church, fundamentalist churches, that say the job of the church is evangelism instead of social concern. Evangelism instead of social concern. They'll say, let others do the social action. Individuals may even want to be involved in their spare time in some social projects, but that's not the job of the church. Those folks would spiritualize Jesus' words when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They'll say, well, that refers to spiritual poverty. When Jesus in Luke 4 says, I've come to preach good news to the poor, they'll say, well, that's to do with spiritual poverty. Our job, they say, is to get people saved. There's no point in looking after their physical needs if they still remain in their sin. And we as the church are the only ones who can deal with the spiritual issue. Therefore, we can't be distracted from that goal by anything else. Social programs, they say, have no place in the church and can lead us to neglect our real calling. How do we respond to that? Well, first of all, it's a bad interpretation of the Bible to spiritualize Jesus' words about the poor. Yes, there clearly is an important and, and a vital spiritual dimension to the term poverty. We can't ignore that, and we'll come to that in a moment. But the simple meaning is usually the right one unless the context declares otherwise in the Bible. And the word poor is an all-embracing word. You can't spiritualize it any more than you can materialize it. Just as you can't say it only refers to what's in your bank account, neither can you just spiritualize it. We all know people whose bank accounts are scant, but who live happy and fulfilled and complete and whole lives. We also know folks who have millions, but who are broken people. But we also know that poor means poor. We also know that debt, starvation, grinding endless poverty can damage a person spiritually. It can hold them within bonds that make it unable for them to lift their heads and see the hope and joy that Christ offers. Listen to what the Old Testament says. uh, character uh, Agar says in Proverbs 30 uh, and verse 8. Proverbs 30 verse 8. This is quite an important verse. He says this, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. 
Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. And so you see, he says that there is a spiritual dimension to our material, our, our material context. That if we become too rich, we all know what it is like that riches can dull you spiritually and you feel that you don't need God. Who is the Lord? But also a lack of what we need, a lack of the basic necessities can also drive us from God because we, we, we don't have the capacity. We're so concerned about providing for ourselves that we end up, uh, in this case, stealing or an, an end up in, in another context which makes it impossible for us to, to, to look up and to see what Christ has to offer. So there's a spiritual dimension. There are spiritual implications to poverty. And that's why Jesus' ministry was to the whole person. He healed. He restored. He welcomed. He forgave those who were outcasts. And if our ministry is to continue the ministry of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can't ignore the materially poor. To say there's no point in looking after their physical needs if they still remain in their sin is to betray a heart very far from the heart of Christ. Christ looked on people with compassion. Of course, there is every point in helping anyone who is in need. It's called Christian love and charity. It reflects the love of God. Similarly, it is wrong to say that social concern will distract us necessarily from our main job. Because, as I'll argue in a minute, it is part and parcel of our main job. Some would look at Acts chapter 6, where the apostle said, it's not good for us to neglect the preaching of the Word to engage in an aid program. But then they totally ignore the whole point of that passage. Because that's got to do with priorities within the church leadership and the church body. The apostles didn't say it's not good for the church to do the aid program. They did the opposite. They actually instituted the aid program. They found other spiritual men to do it. They recognized that this was part of the ministry of the whole church. So to say that evangelism should be undertaken and not social concern is to misunderstand evangelism. And the passage that Lois read in James is the most articulate argument for that. But it's also to misunderstand social action and the role that it can play in bringing in the kingdom. On the other side of the fence, so to speak, there are those who say this. There are those who say that we should do social concern instead of evangelism. Now, that sort of exclusivist position may not be as common, but certainly it's found in some churches, maybe of a, a more broadly liberal theological tradition, and it's found in places, perhaps, where confidence has been lost in the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. Here, the impression is given that the church exists solely to help people, solely to play our part in improving society. And maybe in reaction against a particularly aggressive form of evangelism, some churches shy away from anything that might be construed as forcing our views on other people. They say actions speak louder than words, so let our actions do the talking. They would be fond of the words attributed to St. Francis, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Now this uh, sounds attractive. 
Not many would want to argue against the goodness of, of helping others in need. But is doing it at the exclusion of verbal evangelism biblical? I don't believe so. Throughout the New Testament, we read of the gospel being preached, the message going out. We read of people hearing and repenting. Jesus taught, he preached, he proclaimed the good news. Paul argued, reasoned with his opponents. If one thing was a common feature of the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the early apostles, it was that they used words. Yes, James points out, as we'll see, that words and deeds have to go together. But words can't be absent any more than deeds can be absent. It doesn't make sense to say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, because words are necessary. I think it was C.S. Lewis that used the analogy of teaching someone how to do up a tie. He says there are some things where it's much easier to show than to explain, like telling a child how to do up a tie. You don't give them complicated instructions. You show them how to do it. However, if you're trying to communicate something which requires explanation, if there are truths and concepts that have to be grasped, then words are necessary then. So you can show a child how to do up a tie, but if he says to you, why do I need to wear a tie? Then you'll have to explain something about uniform rules or dress codes or social convention or entrance requirement into certain events, etc., etc. Similarly, we all know that it is easier to follow someone than to listen to complicated directions. So if your friend wants to know where the local dentist is, it will be easier to show him the way and ask him to follow than write out complicated directions. However, how does he know that he needs to go to the dentist? He knows because he has grasped some basic facts about medicine, about his body, about hygiene, about disease, and the professional qualifications of those who are needed to help him. He's been told where he needs to go when his tooth aches, and why he can have confidence that this woman or man will be able to help him. Now, the parallels are quite exact here, because as we all know, there are some things that God needed to show us, not just tell us. God didn't preach a sermon from heaven. He demonstrated his love towards us in Christ dying for us. He came and he lived it out amongst us. But what would have happened had he left it at that? We would have been impressed. We would have been awestruck by this man. We would have been confused, possibly. But we would also have been just as lost as before he came because we would have lacked the necessary knowledge to translate what was happening in front of us into its implications for our lives. So what did Christ do? He taught his disciples. He explained the kingdom of God over and over and over and over. Similarly, the best way to show someone that God loves them and has made a big difference in your life is not, as James says, just to say the Lord bless you, but by demonstrating that love and that care in practical ways. But they will not get to know Jesus if you stop there. Yes, your love will be the agent that brings them closer to God. Yes, hopefully they will recognize that you have something motivating you, something different in your life that they envy and they want. Yes, hopefully they'll ask questions to know more. 
But in order for them to experience what it is that you have, they will need to have their interest and inquiries answered with some basic truths. They will need to have explained to them at least some things, some very simple and basic concepts about themselves, about God, about sin, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To use the dentist analogy again, they will need to know who to go to when their heart and their soul aches. And they will need to know why they can have confidence in the qualifications of this man to cure them. So rather than preach the gospel, use words if necessary, we have to live out the gospel. And while we're doing that, explain why we're doing it. One further point. A position that says just do and don't say, just help and don't preach, leaves itself open to the accusation that the love that is being shown is actually an incomplete love. You see, if we really love the people we're serving, if we really, really love them, we will want more than that they just have food and shelter and education and health. Otherwise, we sail very dangerously close to materialism. We'll give them the impression that life is actually great if you just have enough money and enough access to education and health. If we really love them, we'll want them to understand their spiritual reality in terms of their alienation from God and the possibility of redemption and eternal life. Speaking about these things while demonstrating love in action surely completes the circle. It shows that our love is genuine and holistic. Social action instead of evangelism fails to recognize that the root cause of brokenness in our world is not government policy, nor unjust structures, nor racism, nor global warming, vital though it is for Christians to lobby on all of those issues. The root cause, the most radical cause of brokenness, is the sinfulness of the human heart. And any witness that doesn't take seriously that is not radical enough. A third approach to this issue is to see social concern as a means to evangelism. Now, this would be espoused by those who would agree with a lot of what I've just said. They want to be committed to evangelism, but they don't want to write off social concern. So in order to show that evangelism is primary, they say that social concern is a useful precursor to evangelism. The churches who engage in social action will make contacts with people. They'll be well regarded by the community, and that opens the door for evangelistic opportunity. Now, while much of that is factually true, if that is the only motivation, then we lack integrity. We lack integrity, firstly, because our social action comes with conditions. We're basically saying, listen and believe this message, or the church may actually reconsider and discontinue this program. And we lack integrity, secondly, because people aren't stupid. And we'll soon be found out. And they'll say, well, they only care as long as you think they're going to join, that they think that you're going to join their church. Jesus healed nine lepers who never followed him. He healed a man born blind who didn't follow him at least until a few days later. In Luke 6.35, Jesus warns against giving only to expect something in return. Presbyterian minister Tim Keller has uh, 
characterize this position this way. He says, often we conduct a social relief program simply to get names for our evangelistic visitation team to approach. But deed ministry like grace is unmerited favor. God sends down the rain on the just and the unjust, on the grateful and the wicked. First John 3:17 tells us that the motive of any ministry has to be love. If we see a need, we meet it if we can. And this puts evangelism and mercy on an equal footing motivationally. Does a person need an understanding of the way of salvation? Then we share it. Does the individual need medical help, a better education, or legal advocacy? Out of love, we give those as well. It stands to sense that if we are loving and providing for people, they will be favorably disposed to listening to what we have to say. But that's not to be our motivation. Social action and evangelism need to be motivationally on an equal and a pure footing. Now, before explaining what I believe to be the true relationship between these two aspects of Christian ministry, let me deal with one more flawed approach. The nuances here might be hard to grasp, but I'm going to mention it because I think it's one that many in the wider evangelical church have come to embrace. And that is to see social concern and evangelism as equal but distinct entities. Social witness and evangelism as distinct but separate entities. It was uh, John Stott, I think, who, who first communicated that this way. Social action is a partner of evangelism, he says. The two belong to each other but are independent of each other. Each stands on its own feet in its own right alongside the other. Neither is a means to the other or even a manifestation of the other. Each is an end in itself. Now, I suppose if you'd pushed me up until about a year or two ago, I would have understood the relationship in this way. But the problem with this is that it can give the impression that if both are distinct and separate, then you can have one without the other, which, of course, is what many churches do. They'll say, well, both are necessary in the wider work of the kingdom, but you've got to make choices in church life. One church can't do everything We're a social concern church, or we're an evangelism church. The church up the road does the other. It leaves us open to seeing either as optional. It gives us two goals, two purposes in the Christian ministry, rather than one overriding end. What I want you to consider this morning is what I believe the Jesus approach, that the biblical approach to be. Now, please bear with me and skip over the big word if you don't understand it, because I had to have it explained to me. But I'll explain why it's important to to grasp it in a moment. The biblical approach, I believe, is that evangelism and social concern are indivisible. They're interdependent in what has been called a symbiotic unity. Now, what does that mean? I am no scientist. So I had to have it introduced to me. But I do know Greek, and I know that it meant, symbiotic meant life together. But the example from the world of biology is this. And it's actually the best example I can find of what I'm trying to say. For those of you who have a a scientific background, you will know that a symbiotic relationship is where you have two living organisms, neither of which can survive without the other. 
Now that's different from a parasite. You know, a parasitic relationship is where one organism lives off another. Think of a, a flea on a dog. That's a parasitic relationship. It's pretty good for the flea, but it's not desperately good for the dog. A symbiotic relationship is where neither can live without the other. So evangelism without social concern is not true evangelism. Social concern without evangelism is not true social concern. You got that? Instead of a dualism, two parts of ministry, two distinct and separate ends, we have one, the bringing in of the kingdom of God. And so you see here, if you can't read what's in the circle, it's sort of like a dingbat where you have social concern and evangelism you know, in the letters alternating all in one big spectrum. So we never have to ask which is more important or which comes first. Our Christian lives, as we daily live them out in discipleship of Jesus, should be characterized by loving actions and loving speech, by demonstrating the love of Jesus in gospel deeds and in gospel proclamation. And if our lives lack either aspect of that, we need to ask why. And as a church, what does it mean? Well, it means that if as a church we find ourselves lacking in either aspect, we need to look at ways of redressing that. If over the course of a given year there has been no occasion where the gospel message has been clearly proclaimed, then we'll be failing as a church. If over the course of the year we have not been engaged at some level in alleviating people's physical and material needs, we will have been failing as a church and falling under the condemnation of James chapter 2. Over the next year or so, Session have encouraged some of us to undergo a process facilitated by Tear Fund called Church, Community and Change. You'll be hearing more about this as the weeks and months go by, but basically this is a process for the whole church. By the end of this process, no one here this morning should be able to say, you know, there's no opening for me as a member of Kirkpatrick to serve my local community or those in need in this area in the name of Christ. So let me conclude by leaving you with the four stages involved very briefly. The first two can happen today. The others will take time, in fact, a, a lifetime. First of all, we need to recognize our calling to care. Recognize our calling to care in the name of Christ. The go and do the same of the Good Samaritan story. Recognize that this is not a negotiable aspect of Christian discipleship. It's not an optional extra. It's not for when churches get to a certain size. It's not for when we have our evangelism thing all worked out. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Secondly, we need to be moved with compassion. Our service in this area can't be undertaken out of guilt or to salve some middle-class conscience or as a means to an end. Many times in the gospel we read of Jesus looking at the crowd and being moved with compassion. The phrase in the Greek is that literally his bowels, his innards churned inside him with emotion. It was gut-wrenching for him to see such need. He looked and he loved. Thirdly, we will listen to what the needs of our community are. We will not presuppose them will not jump to conclusions. will not be telling them what their social or material needs are. We will listen. 
We will speak to those in charge of the community centers, the residence associations, the working men's club, the heads and the teachers of the schools, the GPs, those dealing with issues of debt and divorce, age concern, youth workers, other churches in the area. We will do a lot of listening. We will ask a lot of questions. In short, we'll be getting to know our community. And then finally, together, after prayer and discussion, we will seek God's guidance as to the area we can contribute something, and we will act on that in the name of Christ and to His glory. What will that look like? What will it mean? Where will it lead us? I don't know. It's a great thing about this sort of process. We go in with no specific expectations. Let's not pat ourselves on the back too much. Listening to the people here on our doorstep is a far cry from the sort of radical actions Jesus was calling for in the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's a start. It's where we have to begin. So may God give us the grace and the wisdom to follow the leading of His Spirit as we start down the road of obedience. Let's pray. Lord, You are a God of justice, and You hear the victim's cries. We pray that that same compassion which moved Your heart here on earth and continues to move you, would be stirred up in each and every one of us, that through word and action, we can play our part in bringing in the kingdom of God to the glory of God here in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish with uh, another song that asks for that uh, passion to be stirred up within us. Beauty for brokenness. Let's praise God.